Father, there are times in life where we just, we just don't know. Your word tells us not to worry and not to be anxious, but we're flawed, we're human, and we are. Thank you that you continually love on us, even in our doubts and our frustrations and our brokenness. You are a loving God. Lord, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So uh, we've been working through the letter of Hebrews, and we're going to continue to work through this letter for, the, for a while. Um, Last week, we kind of ventured into chapter four, and by the time we were ending our time together, the, the author of the letter, he was kind of unpacking for us this mystery of Jesus and, and who he is. And it was in the context of Jesus being our high priest and, and what that kind of means, the, the once and for all high priest. Now, this would be a very big deal for this little church who, who used to... Um, follow the faith tradition of Judaism, and now they have converted to Christianity. They've converted to um, Jesus being the Messiah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the high priest in their tradition, or their old tradition, it had a lot of meaning. It was a big deal. This was the man that once a year would take the entire sin of the nation into the Holy of Holies and seek God's forgiveness on behalf of the people. And now the author is telling us, well, Jesus now is the once and for all high priest. That he has gone to the cross, he has made that sacrifice, that sacrifice of atonement, which in the past was symbolic, but now is actual. It, it actually did what it was supposed to do. Once and for all, on the cross, Jesus has um, gotten the forgiveness that we need by when we, when we put our faith in him. So it's the sacrifice was made once and for all. That's it. It doesn't have to be made anymore. He is now our great high priest. And as we walk in faith with him, we are forgiven. God has forgiven us. As we walk in faith with Jesus, we have been reconciled back to the Father. As we walk in faith with Jesus, we are clothed with his righteousness. And so that kind of ended the, the fourth chapter and as he begins the fifth chapter, and now remember this is a letter, so we have throughout the years put chapter and verse in. So he's writing a letter, but he wants to continue to, to press into this idea of high priest, qualifications of the high priest, and how Jesus meets those qualifications perfectly. And so we're going to spend the rest of the time just kind of unpacking a bunch of verses. And we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. He writes this, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. 
And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So this is kind of a short list of qualifications that were ideal in a high priest. Now God is listing these out for us, and, and, it's, and it's in a very humanistic uh, genre. This is what the high priest should be throughout generations and generations and generations. This should be the posture of their heart. It's what God has desired for the priest to be. Now we know that with time, this kind of all went out the window because by the days of Jesus, the, high, the office of high priest became very corrupt. And it was actually a political appointment and not a God appointment. But this is God's original plan for it. And right out of the box, he says, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So we see that the first qualification of a high priest is it has to be a human being. It can't be a cow, it can't be a goat, it can't be an angel or some other celestial being. It has to be a person, flesh, blood, involved in the context and the life of humanity. Now, historically, this office was held by a man. And so he was, it was held by a man. He was chosen from among the people or chosen from among the Levitical priesthood. But what we find right from the beginning is there has to be this, this solidarity between the priests and the people that he was representing. Because he was the man that comes before God to represent the people of God in the context of their sin. And so he offers the sacrifice as a symbolic atonement for forgiveness of their sin. So him being part of humanity, his shared humanity, is not only important, but it was mandatory. It had to be that way. And yes, he was a holy man. He had this special relationship with God, in relation with God, but he was still one of us. He still came from the people. And that is of utmost importance in order for him to represent the people before God. He lived within the community. He lived relating to family and friends in the context of the community. I'm learning more and more as I get older in life, and especially in the context of being a pastor and getting to talk with people and uh, just meet people, that life never goes smoothly. Like, like there's always twists and there's always turns and there's always bumps and we're always kind of falling down, and, and even when you're walking deeply with God, and you're standing and you're just looking out over the mountaintops, life never just stays this, this smooth, easygoing thing. We suffer stress, and we suffer joy. We, we suffer, we, we deal with misunderstandings within our relationships. We deal with victories within life. We, we can suffer humiliation at times, we can be exonerated sometimes when we've been blamed for something and it wasn't our fault or we didn't do it. But, but I'm learning that life can be a very difficult place to move through. And then you just bring it kind of into the everyday stuff, you know, uh, raising children, busy schedules, and 
paying lots of bills with just a little bit of money, you know, and, and all these things that kind of gather around. The car breaks down, the, the, the sink's got a leak in it, the, the washing machine doesn't work anymore, the, and you could just go on and on. That doofus in the cubicle over just will not turn the music down. And, and all of these things just kind of grind upon us. The everyday things of life. But there's something about... There's something about those things that give us a common reality, a common thread in our lives. There's something about those things that can help us relate to one another. As a pastor, I see that as I live through these things myself, I'm easily able to relate with people who are going through the same things. I know, I've been there, I get it, I understand it. I can speak into it, I could speak truth into it because I've been there. Not that I have all the answers and not that I've figured it all out, but there's a camaraderie between us. And this is, this is the principle of why the high priest had to be from among the people so he can understand. And this is why Jesus left glory to become one of us so he could understand Verse two and three, it says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. The heart of a high priest should be a heart of compassion and a heart of empathy. There, there is a gentleness that God wants for his priests for his high priest, a gentleness that's, that's just deep down inside. You know, that gentleness that you can't fake. It's just part of who you are. The high priest knows who he is in relation to God. He knows who he is in relation to the people. He knows who he is deep down on the inside. He, he doesn't run from himself. He deals with what's going on inside in himself. And he's not afraid of it. And he looks it square in the face. And he understands it. And from that place, there's a, there's a gentleness that begins to happen in the heart. I think of Matthew chapter 11 when, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, which, which means follow my teachings. Take my yoke upon you for what? For I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. So there's something about this gentleness that's very inviting and that's what God wants for the heart of the priest's to be gentle because he knows, the high priest knows he's not perfect. He doesn't have all the answers. He is not tiptoeing on the clouds while everybody else is walking through the mud. He is one of them. In fact, he has fallen short in many ways. He has to make atonement for his own sin before he can make atonement for the sins of the people. He has been tempted. He has oopsed. He has sinned before God. And so as he lives year after year after year with the people, experiencing all the highs and all the lows, all the, the back and forth, he, the high priest, has dealt with the own, his own shortcomings in his heart. He recognizes the battle that's within his own heart and his own soul. And this way now, ideally, he can deal gently with the people and gently with their sin. The, the idea is that he deals with a wise and gentle 
restraints. There's, there's a realization that comes when we recognize our own weakness, when we recognize our own sinfulness. There's, there's something that if you allow God to churn that and you don't become arrogant in that, that it produces this, this gentleness of your own spirit. And the Beatitudes, when Jesus was teaching um, Matthew chapter 5, and he's given the blessed are they, blessed are those. The first one, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he means by that is, blessed are those people who realize that they've got nothing within themselves to get them right with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then the next one, blessed are those who mourn. And, and what, he's, what he's saying, blessed are those people who are, are re, realize their own sinfulness, their own brokenness, and, and they're grieved over it. Blessed are those people who realize and see the, the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world, and, and, and they grieve over it. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. And then the third one is blessed, or blessed are those who are meek, or blessed are those who are gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. There's this progression of a heart of gentleness, of recognizing our own weakness, recognizing that there is nothing within us that can get us right with God except Jesus Christ, recognizing our own sin, mourning over our own sin, and then God just transforms the heart, and we will inherit the earth. This is the, God's desire for the heart of his high priest. And then the last characteristic we see, which is uh, kind of straight up, and no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So that's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. No one gets to say, today, this week, this year, I'm going to be high priest. Now, we see that a couple times in the Old Testament where these people decided that they were going to elevate themselves to be priests, elevate themselves to be the high priest, and guess what? It never ended well. It never went well for them. In fact, there's this one story in Numbers chapter 16 where this dude, Korah, he decides, I'm going to be high priest. And his 250 followers go, you got this, man. In fact, we're going to be priests with you. And guess what happens? It says that the earth swallowed them up. That's not a good day. It's not a good ending to a day. And so anybody who has elevated themselves to think that they are going to be the priest, uh-uh. God calls the priests. It's, it's God's calling. Now again, this, this office got corrupt towards the days of Jesus, but originally it was God who decided who would be priest. Now within these four verses, we have the ideal, perfect, human priest. He's got solidarity with the people because he's part of them. He knows them. He walks with them. He is empathetic. He, is, he has compassion because he recognizes his own weakness and he can deal gently with them. And he has been called by God. This is the ideal high priest that God would want leading his people. We're going to see how Jesus fulfills every one of these characteristics and yet still remained sinless. Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet Jesus remained sinless. And all of the weakness that he endured in his humanity, Jesus remained sinless. Now, the next six verses, verses five through 10, uh, they, the writer begins to kind of unpack this for us, how Jesus fulfills this. 
And verses 5 and 6, they're important because they're Scripture, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because verses 7 through 9, that's where kind of the rubber meets the road for me in the context of who Jesus is. So what we're going to do is we're just going to read through um, verses 5 and 6. It says, In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so that's kind of straight up. Melchizedek, Old Testament, king of Salem, hooks up with Abraham. They do some stuff. Abe gives them some cash. They go on their way. But he's a high priest of God. He's a mystery in the Old Testament. He doesn't really have a beginning. He doesn't really have an end. He's just kind of out there. Read the story. It's a good story to read. But now we come to the next three verses that just speak to this sacred mystery of Jesus. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. So the writer is pulling the story of Jesus, sharing it with this church. He's referencing a, a, a time when Jesus walked this planet fully God, fully man, and though he put aside his divinity under the Father's will, under obedience to the Father, he didn't just flaunt it for his own purposes. And what this is referencing is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his betrayal, the night of his arrest, the night that would begin his passion, the night that began his walk to the cross. And what I want to do is I want to read that out of Matthew chapter 26 to give us some context. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. There is evidence in the Gospels, if you dig a little deeper, that Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane, was, this wasn't a one-time thing for him. It seems that he, would, um, he might have been there a few other times, maybe at the end of other celebrations, maybe at the end of uh, big dinners. He would take 
uh, the boys with them, and maybe they would pray, maybe they would teach, maybe they, he would teach, maybe they would just unwind a little bit, try to get away together. So now, before he gets here, before he gets to the garden, he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. We know this as the Last Supper. And now the Last Supper, the, the disciples take part in this, and the reason why they're so tired and falling asleep, because if you know the Hebrew tradition of the Passover meal, uh, they drink about four glasses of wine, and so they got a little buzz going on. And so, yeah, they're, they're kind of tired. They ate a big old meal. And, but, but, but Jesus, is, he still walks with them through this whole Passover meal. And it would seem to be that the disciples don't think anything is any different from any other time they've been with Jesus. They don't see, nothing seems to stand out for them during this meal. Now we might go, well, wait, 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 really? Because wasn't that Passover meal, wasn't that last supper when, when Jesus did the whole uh, bread and wine and, and, and body and, and blood and do this in remembrance of me thing? And didn't he go around washing their feet? And, and Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, you got no part of me. And Peter's like, give me the whole sponge bath then. And, and, so, and so, so we look at it and go, they, they should have known something was going on. Are they that dull? But we have to remember that this, this is Jesus we're talking about here. And these guys have been walking with Jesus for about three years. And they've been traveling with Jesus and they have probably seen some stuff, like serious stuff, stuff that didn't make sense. Jesus was always defining a new normal, always defining like an odd new normal. Like there was this one time where he's preaching and, and he's telling these stories, they're called parables. They're like stories with the meeting. And he's laying it on thicker and heavier and he's, and he's telling all these stories and the disciples come up to him and go, hey Jesus, uh, you know, nobody understands these stories that you're telling. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, that's why I'm telling them stories. There's this other time where they're in a boat and the sea is raging. These are fishermen. Jesus is sound asleep in the boat and they're freaking out. And they're like, don't you care about us? And he's like, for real? And he gets up and he goes, quiet. And the sea and the wind stop. He was always hanging around with prostitutes and drunkards and gluttons, but he, but he always seemed to be in contention with the religious leaders of his day. One day he's out walking around and he's a little bit hungry, so he walks up to a fig tree hoping to get a couple figs off the tree. There's no figs on the tree, so what's Jesus do? He curses the tree and it dies. Okay. Another story is uh, Jesus tells the disciples, listen, you guys get in the boat, go across the lake, I'll meet you over there. They look at him and go, uh, you don't have a boat. He goes, don't worry about it, I'll walk. He's with thousands of people. Jesus goes, you all got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, mm-mm, we're out. And so what is normal with Jesus? And so we look at these disciples and say, don't you get it? But no, they didn't get it. We wouldn't have either. Nothing was normal. And so Jesus takes, he leaves this meal. He takes the 12. He drops off nine. He takes the three closest friends of his, he walks in a little bit further, and he tells them, guys, my heart is overwhelmed to the point of death. Will you just keep watch with me for a little while? Which means Jesus is asking for his friends to pray for him, to pray with him. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ask another time, will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? But he's asking now, my heart is overwhelmed to the point of death. Will you pray with me? 
Have you ever felt so overwhelmed that you wanted to die? That's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus was. Maybe you know what it feels like. And so he heads in a little bit deeper and he drops to the ground and goes, Dad, if there's another way to do this, I'm in. But, but it's not my will, it's, it's yours. And he says the story, comes back and he, and he looks at his disciples and they're sound asleep. And he's like, really guys, you just couldn't pray with me for an hour? And he heads back in and, and he falls down again and he's like, Father, please, if there's another way, but not my will, but yours. And he comes back out and, and, his, and his closest friends are there again, sound asleep. Can you imagine the loneliness he must have felt in that moment? All he needed was his friends to stay awake and pray. And they couldn't do it. And they fell asleep. And he goes back. And he prays one more time, Father, if there is another way, please, but not my will, yours. In Luke's account, it says that he was in such anguish that he was sweating what looked to be like blood. It was just pouring off his head. The weight of what was being asked of him was so big that, that no human being could possibly, could possibly take that on themselves. It was too much to bear. He, and, and it wasn't about the cross. It wasn't about the physicalness of the cross. It was about Jesus ready to take the entire weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders. All of the shame in the world, all of the guilt in the world, all of the despair in the world, past, present, and future was gonna be poured out upon him and it was crushing his soul. In those moments in the garden, in those moments in the garden, everything in him, all of his humanness was just screaming, get out of here. Run away. This is not going to end well for you. The agony was unbearable. The fear, the anxiety was crushing him. And what does Jesus do? He prays, and he prays, and he prays until the moment comes where he will be obedient to the Father's will. And he freely, in submission, was obedient to the Father's will. And moments later, a close friend would come to him and kiss him on the cheek and betray him. Jesus knows the weight of our guilt, of our shame, of our hurt, of our brokenness, of our anguish. He knows. He knows it all. All very, very well. And yes, he was without sin. He became sin for us. The when, when we use the word in, in church world of, you know, repent, the word has this, this coarseness to it, you know. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent or you're going to hell. And, and, it, and it seems, you know, it feels like turn or burn-ish, you know. Repent. You got to repent. And, and even if you say it just repent, it almost sounds like you're, it feels like you're yelling, repent. 
And Jesus comes, and, and when we read his words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, we read it as, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there, there's something threatening about the word. But I see it, and, and just as I, as I spend time with Jesus in the Gospels and, and in the Bible, repentance isn't a threat. Repentance is an invitation. Repentance is, is an invitation. Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, just leave all of that crap behind you. I got something better for you. I've got something that's so much better for you. I, I have a life that's whole. I have a life that's put back together again. I have a life for you that's, that's healed. He says, I, I know the shame that you have for that. I know the guilt that you suffer because of this. And he's inviting us. Repent. Turn around. Walk away from that stuff. There's something better for you. The invitation is for us to fall into the loving arms of an ever-living God. That's repentance. Jesus was saying, I know. I know. I know what it feels like. I know the hurt. Walk away from it and follow me. The invitation is to learn the unforced rhythm of his grace. Walk away from that. I've got something better for you. Something so much better. Walk, walk toward me. That's the invitation that he gives because he's been there and he knows what we go through. You know, I am... Um, I try as the best I can without being too stupid up here to share my struggles of faith with you guys. I mean, I don't do it every week, but, but uh, I try to be transparent and honest to the best of my ability. And, you know, as a pastor, we deal with lots of frustrations just like you do. And we deal with doubt. We deal with guilt and shame. We're not immune to it. We're not immune to the things of life. Now, I, I want you to know something that, and I know this is gonna surprise many of you, if not everyone, I'm not perfect. I know, I know. We have counselors set up in the back afterwards to help you through that. But I got issues. You can ask my wife and probably my children. We all do. We all wrestle with these, these things and I continually need to be reminded of this invitation that God gives me, this invitation from the great high priest to repent because he knows. He knows all of that stuff. I personally know what shame feels like. I know what humiliation feels like. I know what anxiety and guilt feels like. And here's what I also know. Jesus knows what I'm feeling. And here's what I also know, that Jesus knows why I'm feeling that way because I have messed up, I have not done the things that God has called me to do, and yet he still invites me to himself. Repent. Repent. I've got something better for you. I've got a, a richer life for you. And I know that the, the, the invitation is always there for every single one of us, every single moment of the day. Will we trust Jesus? 
Will we trust that he knows what we're going through? Will we trust that, that he knows what our guilt feels like and our shame feels like and, and he can go to the Father and say, I got that, I got that. Repent is the invitation of an ever-loving God. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? As our tradition is, if uh, there's something that God is doing and churning into you, you don't have to rush out of here. We're gonna have some people up here that would wanna pray with you, wanna pray for you, want to pray with you. If there's something that you need to, if you wanna answer that invitation of repentance, then do it. We're all in the same boat. We all got issues. We're all broken. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. But we have Jesus. And his invitation says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him because he is gentle in spirit. That's our Jesus. That's our God. That's the invitation of repentance. That's our high priest. Father, thank you for the invitation that you give your church every moment of every day. And now give us the strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk into that invitation of repentance. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so graceful toward us and merciful and forgiving. Thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. I will see you next week, and we'll keep you all posted on Tiffany, I mean, um, Esther and Andrew. <laughs>